1: this is the cable big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week tech story is front and center a lot of people are saying no thank you step back you're saying get in why your connection
2: from the london market close to the u.s market
3: action a significant sell-off in european assets the dollar a little bit stronger today this is a stock that is increasingly being shorted
2: the cable
1: an historic moment from which there can be no turning back with jonathan ferro and guy johnson
2: on bloomberg radio
1: Good afternoon, good afternoon. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow. A tough day, a tough session for Europe. With the FTSE down around about 1.5%, the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany down 7 tenths. Resilient in the United States, the S&P 500 unchanged. Cracks emerging, Guy, in this long story for Europe.
3: Yeah, I, I today I think is is a... It is a little bit of one-off in in some ways, but I think you're also right to talk about the cracks that are emerging because the German case count is rising. I think you want to pay attention to that. The reason why the travel and leisure sector is down as much today is because of concerns around the spread of the virus. The UK's made the decision to therefore ask people returning uh, from France and a number of other countries, including the Netherlands, to quarantine for 14 days. Um, it's just another blow for the for the tourism sector, which. Is a large portion of why we have seen the big drown draft today uh, in the European markets versus the United States. So it's, it's I think there is a kind of short term story to it, which is the UK's kind of decided to, to make another kind of knee jerk decision and, and give people relatively short notice uh, in terms of their travel plans. Uh, but it is a longer term story of the, the case count is rising again in Europe. And, and does yeah. that undermine, as you say, the case for investing on the continent? I just think it's a crack in the in the bullishness that I've seen over the last
1: couple of yep. weeks. And Guy, you've witnessed it as well on the many programmes that we have to host. Many people became far more constructive on the European economy than they did on the US economy, largely because of the handling of the virus. And I always thought when it came to Europe, you need to separate the two issues. The redenomination risk on the one hand of the fiscal agreement of several weeks ago, a month ago now, and the recovery and repricing the recovery. Now, as a relative story, you can say we've handled the pandemic better in the United States than we've handled the pandemic uh, in Europe rather than the United States. And therefore, I think the recovery is going to be cleaner. Uh, okay. It just depends how far you want to push that story. I think we've seen a lot of the redenomination risk fade that took euro dollar up towards 120. Now it's a show me story. Show me that economic recovery. And what we've seen in the United States relative to expectations is the economy guide largely hold up. Better than expected as we get deeper into summer.
3: Yeah. What is interesting today, though, is that the euro is higher, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Trading 118 now. Um, So I I think it's really hard to tease apart what's happening. The dollar has gone down today. Gold's gone down today. Is Is the dollar the cleanest reflection of people's perceptions of the United States at the moment? I don't know. You, you, you kind of pay your money, you take your choice on which benchmark you ultimately want to look at. I think the big part of the run-up that we've seen in, in the euro came earlier on in the month, or actually late last month in certain ways. Actually, the euro, I think, has gone largely sideways over the last few weeks, and I think it's, it's kind of bumping up against the top now. So, again, that may be a reflection of the reality that actually maybe this, this trade has gone as far as it's going to go. Guy, what a
1: moment for going on holiday in the UK. Do you want to take the risk going to Europe? without knowing that you can come back without needing to quarantine for two weeks. Can you imagine if you just made it to France? I mean, the good news is you're just in France. You can probably get back quite quickly. But there's going to be a rush for the ferries, I imagine.
3: There is, yeah. No, it's on. You can't book a ticket. Unbelievable. You can't get on the trains. You can't book a ticket. It's on the ferries. Yeah, really, really difficult. You've got until 4 a.m., I think, tomorrow morning. Otherwise, it's a two-week quarantine. Otherwise, it's a two-week quarantine. Now... What I will say is, and this is only anecdotal, is that it is a personal choice as to whether or not you actually do that. What, take I, the quarantine? I've spoken to a number of people. They've had a phone call at best. Yeah, I've heard um, the same thing. If you talk to people who are being quarantined in, say, Singapore or Australia, I, they take you off the plane, they put you on a bus, they drive you to a hotel. You stay in that hotel for the duration. Do you really? And then you come out. I Yeah. I'm slightly overemphasizing the point, but basically that is the way. There are degrees of, of um, rigidity in the system in different parts of the world. Uh, and, and as far as I can tell, and I, this is totally anecdotal, so don't kind of send me lots of nasty emails. Um, not you, John, but others. Um, I'm happy to join in, if you um, like. Because <laughs> the, the, the doesn't, it doesn't seem to be that enforced. But okay. yeah, I think, I think the point is... is He's a refined guy. Uh, Yes, there is a fine. And they've upgraded the fines for not wearing masks. So so I, I think the UK government has been really kind of crushed by what happened early on. And the inability of the UK to get a grip on what happened is now being reflected at the back end of this process, with the UK taking a much more vigorous approach. Um, in, in terms of trying to make sure that this doesn't happen again I, Boris Johnson needs to make sure that the autumn goes well needs to make sure that schools go back needs to make sure that the economic damage is not further exacerbated I think they made a series
1: of bad decisions and I'm struggling to keep up with the thread of thinking guy still I mean if you want to have a mass mandate have one but have it as you're reopening the economy surely why are we doing it now?
3: yep and why I, why, not, why not also, if you want to manage the economy, make the process of putting lockdowns in place more transparent and more easily understandable? Because you've seen what's happened with the travel sector today, and this is going to be a further nail in the coffin for that sector as it tries to figure out how many people it's going to have to lay off. Um, oh. Uh, I think br- really brutal decisions are going well, to have to be made. I
1: think for a consumer as well, Guy, at this point, you're making the decision to go to Europe. You are asking yourself, am I going to have to face a quarantine when I get back, even if this cu- country is not on the quarantine list? Yep. Tim Craig has with us from Bloomberg Intelligence. Delicate moment for that European trade, Tim.
4: Yeah, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I- I'd love to hear you all comment. Oh, my goodness. Um, we can talk about that sort of stuff all all day you know it's, it's interesting looking at the u.s versus europe It's still a case where clearly the u.s is outperforming and it's outperforming on the heels of technology um, and sector composition which is just not in place in europe or the uk and you know now it's a question is from here we, we look into the autumn, and notwithstanding the heebie that came about, in technical terms, that came about today with this travel ban um, and the, the upticks in numbers around. Those are still relatively small numbers. There's yeah. still a lot of policy push.
1: It's an important technical term. <laughs> Tim, great to catch up. As always, I'm Bloomberg
2: Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
3: Um, We are waiting for an IPO of Covac, the German company. It's listing in the United States. It's going out of the door at 16. Indications are, though, that it could open somewhere between 40 and 50 bucks. Earlier on, Alex Steele and I caught up with Dr. Franz Werner Haas. Uh, Alex started asking him about why they priced at 16 when the market seems to want kind of a price nearer to 50.
5: Well, I think we price on the demand. Uh, we know exactly what we do and I think this is an appropriate price where we went out with and there should be room for improvement, of course.
3: Nevertheless, you could be opening at 50 bucks. Um, You've raised circa 200 million. You could have raised um, 600 million. You could have used that money uh, potentially to drive this company further forward. I'm just curious as to what the conversations you were having you with your advisors. Uh, They were telling you 16 looks like a reasonable price. Yet here we are, Friday, 50 bucks could be the opening price. That's a pretty big spread.
5: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, We didn't know this yesterday, of course. uh, But I think what we have, uh, we we evaluated what we have and what we are up to. And we really want to drive the company any further. And then uh, certainly what the market conditions are, you only do later. But I think we are in a very good shape.
4: Uh, We are obviously still waiting for that stock to trade. There were also some reports earlier today that you're in talks with some potential partners on producing uh, a vaccine. Can you give us some details?
5: Yes, of course. So uh, it's just a few weeks ago that we signed a uh, major agreement, a platform agreement with uh, KlaxoSmithKline, JSK, one of the world-leading infectious disease companies. It's not only about prophylactic vaccines, but also about um, protective antibodies, which you can code on RNA. The RNA is delivering the message to the body to produce its own vaccine or the own antibody in order to be protective. And that's pretty broad, and this is what we are evaluating with JSK on this strategic deal. Very important for us.
3: uh, You're in phase one. Um, you are going to brief the markets uh, in a little while about how that phase one trial is going. Um, Messenger RNA, obviously something that hasn't really been done before and given regulatory clearance before. Um, Can you give us an update as to what progress you're making? Uh, Is it going well? Let's start there.
5: Well, mRNA is in the clinics for a while now in different indications in oncology, for example, but also in prophylactic vaccines. We are working in prophylactic vaccines now since 2011 and started the first clinical trial in 2015. And uh, what we see here in the COVID-19 uh, vaccine candidate, what we are developing is we had first of all preclinical studies to find the best candidate to go with. and we are in a very low dosage. It's a two, four, six, eight microgram in a dose finding regime. and we are waiting to see the uh, the optimal dosage to be defined then somewhere in end of September, beginning of October, and it looks pretty safe and tolerable, which is first thing, but then it should uh, generate virus neutralizing titers to get a protection. and we are, have very high hopes on this.
4: What we've also seen a lot of is it just takes a lot of money to uh, make these vaccines. Talk to me about the relationship you have with the German government. Like, who is buying the vaccine already? How much money are you going to need to develop it? Uh, And how do you then disperse it? Like, how do you think about a profit on that sense?
5: Yeah, well, uh, to start with the investment to put into this accelerated, in this case, because of the pandemic outbreak, uh, uh, accelerated development of the vaccine. And this certainly costs quite a lot of money. This is a a significant three-digit million amount because uh, after the first phase, you have to go international to go where the virus is. And then you have to recruit thousands of human subjects in order to be vaccinated. So all of this does cost a lot of money. And then certainly it is... It is the governments who are, at the end of the day, your, your uh, customers. You see this with other pharma companies as well, who are signing already kind of advanced purchase agreements um, uh, in order to secure certainly the dosages. Our inv- The investment of the German government into CureVac, however, is an equity investment to develop the company and the technology of the company to be much more applicable also for other things, apart from COVID-19.
3: Uh, that was the CEO of KUVAC talking to Alex Steele and myself a little bit earlier, on The latest indications, 45.35, IPO priced at 16. Uh, but we are still waiting for that IPO price to come through onto the Bloomberg screen. Uh, more to follow, uh, what a market week it has been. Uh, we'll have more interviews. Plus, also, we'll talk about that deal between the uh, the UAE and Israel. All of that coming up. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow at the close today. It was a tough one, a rough one for the FTSE, down around about 1.6%. The equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, down seven-tenths of 1%. Stateside resilient, which goes against the grain of the story we've heard repeatedly over the last month, and that's the United States will underperform and outperforming Europe based on the handling of the pandemic and Europe getting its fiscal act together as talks break down on Capitol Hill between Republicans and Democrats. Earlier on today, we caught up with David Riley of Blue Bay Asset Management Take a listen to what he had to say on that consensus trade.
4: I think it is. I think the narrative uh, has been building is that you know, Europe's had a better pandemic than the US. It's been able to uh, contain the virus more uh, effectively. And even on the policy uh, front, even though the Fed kind of got ahead of the uh, game, on fiscal policy, we've had the you know, EU recovery fund while we've got the stalemate in uh, Washington. And so it's been part of this story of a you know, stronger euro, uh, to some extent a sort of rotation uh, from sort of growth to value and the and, and, and valuation opportunities within uh, Europe. But you know, that that narrative is getting challenged because, you know, cases in the US and infection rates are actually um, declining, although still at a a worryingly high um, level. And and we're clearly seeing a pick up in infection rates across uh, several countries uh, in in Europe. And it's going to be hard as well, I think, for for, for Europe to sort of outperform and sustain a strong recovery, because it still is so dependent on global growth and global trade. So, David,
1: For me, there's two issues, and we shouldn't conflate the two. There's redenomination risk, which arguably has diminished a whole lot because of that fiscal agreement in the last month. Just the idea that the probability that the eurozone blows up goes down somewhat. And then there's repricing the recovery. For a relative trade right now, what's more compelling? The United States, which is trying to correct course, or Europe, which is facing some trouble?
4: I think from, I mean, certainly from a sort of... Uh, relative value and, and from, from looking at it from a kind of credit perspective, I actually do quite like um, parts of the US credit market. And I know Lisa with you and she may be surprised by this after yes, we I have uh, the print of a two and... I love how two every investor <laughs> in the world um, literally uh, comes <laughs> on this show and when they're bullish <laughs> they have
1: to say Lisa's not going <laughs> to like this.
4: <laughs> carry on, this yeah, a reputation.
1: Gone, <laughs> carry on,
4: David. I, I'm... Yeah, I'm, I, you know, look, I'm, I'm based in Europe and, uh, you know, back in 2017, uh, the European high yield market uh, was yielding around 2.3 uh, percent. So we know yields can go, uh, high yield can become a, a little bit of a mis, uh, misnomer. And, um, you know, I do think that you, you do need to move down uh, the, the, the credit spectrum. I think double B's are. Um, too pricey. Um, but I think there is value in the sort of single B names you've been adding even within some of the um, triple Cs as well. And, you know, US high yield on a sort of beta adjusted basis, you know, I, you know based on what you would have expected it to perform relative to either the Russell or, or the S&P 500 is actually uh, lagged equity. So, you know, when you've got that search for yield and you've got the Treasuries where they are, and I know this is a very familiar um, story, then I think some uh, uh, value there. You know, in, in Europe as well, I think the more the issue is just, uh, you know, as you said, uh, Jonathan, you know, that sort of breakup risk has diminished, and so you know, I've liked the periphery. Um, but again, the peripheral spreads have come a long way, so it's kind of reducing some of the uh, risks that we have there as well. Well, David, I would hate to disappoint with my reputation and for you saying that you are buying uh, single B and triple C rated credit, the lowest rated of high yield debt at a time of growing bankruptcies. How do you gauge the insolvency risk with this idea that you are searching for yield, but it still is lower than perhaps it would be if you didn't have a Fed put? Yeah, that's that's absolutely um, correct. I mean, firstly, Um, In terms of the, you know, bankruptcy and uh, default risk, yeah, I think the market right now is pricing the US high-yield defaults will peak at around about sort of 9%, 10% um, at the end of the year. And I think that's probably about right. And, you know, despite all the sort of uh, commentary around the pricing within uh, the credit market, the reality is is that um, it has become quite bifurcated. Um, When we look at the, you know, proportion of companies... Um, and credits that are pricing at distressed uh, levels, um, those also yielding sort of more than 10%. It's around about 8% of the market. I think we know who the default um, candidates are. So I don't think we're going to get a a negative surprise, unless, of course, you know, the economy, you know, economic recovery stalls, and that could happen if we don't get a deal out of um, Washington on the fiscal side. So I, I think for the market to rally further... I think there's going to have to be some compression. So I think, you know, the single Bs have got room to, 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 to move higher. Um, we're still trying to, as, as credit selectors, active uh, investors, go you know, for those uh, single B names which um, have less direct COVID exposure where we still think the, the, the overall business model is going to be viable in this kind of post-COVID world.
1: That was David Riley of Blue Bay Asset Management just going through some of those themes, Guy on the next steps for this trade. And I do think there's a difference between repricing, redenomination risk and repricing the recovery in Europe. We've gone some way to diminishing redenomination risk on the continent, just the idea that the probability of Eurozone breakup has gone down. I don't know how far you can push this idea that Europe's going to outperform in a massive way, given what we're seeing in economic data around the world at the moment.
3: Uh, and that leads you to the question, has the, has the dollar trade gone too far now? Um... We've spoken a lot and a lot of people have written a lot over the last few weeks about dollar weakness. And a lot of people are expecting more of that trade. If that doesn't materialize, I think a lot of people are going to have to have a rethink come September.
1: Do you think euro dollar 119 guy was it? Do you think that was the move? I mean, it's really difficult to tell, but just
3: looking no, at how I, extended I, things got and how quickly it happened. It happened pretty fast, didn't it? Um, and, I'm, and I'm struggling for where the next catalysts come from there is a lot of risk in the united states now don't get me wrong you've got the election risk covid's really not under control um i i i think the the, the fed is still a wild card in all of this like, i think there's a bunch of factors that are still kind of have the potential to cause consternation on, on your side of the atlantic rather than mine but I, I, the move has gone a long way i, I would expect certainly a period of consolidation for euro dollar.
1: We'll continue the conversation on the US side, on the economy just wrapping up the data this week, PPI, CPI and retail sales, we'll do that with Yelena Shvedseva of Bloomberg Economics next on Bloomberg Radio
2: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio
3: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, let's talk about where the markets are. One eighteen thirty four on the euro dollar rate. The euro stronger today despite uh, disappointing equity market performances being delivered. Like volume is still super light. Uh, the FTSE 100 down by 1.5%. The CAC are not down by 1.5%. The DAX outperforming uh, a little bit. Only down by 7 tenths of 1%. Travel and leisure certainly the losers today. We've seen the airlines under pressure as the UK imposes a a significant number of countries to the quarantine list. If you're back from these countries, you are now required, as of 4am tomorrow morning, uh, to quarantine for two weeks. The big one on that list, France. Unreal. John, the UK is basically cutting itself off. Can you imagine, Guy, two weeks off when you get there,
1: two weeks off when you get back? I mean, for some people, they'll be able to work from home and maybe it won't be a big deal for them. Yep. But... um for others it would be almost impossible and I think that's the tragedy about this for those people that have saved up all year to make that holiday over to France that maybe need to be in a job where they have to work away from their house who have now been told effectively they've got to stay in their home for two weeks it would affect people differently but I am much more worried about the people that really struggle to go on these kind of holidays make it over there and now they face two weeks of not being able to work that's a big problem
3: and the social security net isn't sufficient, really, to compensate. If I am being honest, in fact, it's not even. Close yeah, I mean, to being holidays now, guy, just
1: virtually impo- I- I- impossible. Possible. So, I mean, yeah. I, I face this situation myself, and happy to talk about it. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll take some time off for the first time this year, and I've got to work out where on earth I go because there is a long, long list of states for New York, which essentially means if you visit one, you come back, you've got a quarantine here for two weeks. Now, the nature of our jobs, guy, means we can at least work from home. If we need to work from home, we're lucky. But it does make you wonder whether it's worth going anywhere. And for so many of these economies, and this was the complaint that came from Spain, of course, so much of their GDP comes from tourism, Spain, Italy, France. Their big worry is that if one country cuts them off, others follow. Saw that happen a bit with Spain. Could that happen with France? In a country that has already suffered, an economy that has seen consumption severely hit, this is just another smack around the head. You know, the cynics out there, Guy, and there's a lot of them today, saying that this was just the government's way of distracting people from the A-levels fiasco, uh, that this was announced very quickly out of nowhere and the news (sighs) cycle's moved on. I don't know. I'm not in the head of government officials. It's been in the newspapers for a week This has been on the radar
3: for a while across the continent. This has absolutely been on the radar for a while. Um, why don't we get some headlines and we'll come back and talk about it a bit more. Charlie Pella, I over.
6: Thank you very much. Here's what's going on, Guy. Prime Minister Boris Johnson says England can resume the paused easing of lockdown rules with theatres, casinos and beauty parlours allowed to reopen but warn there will be tougher penalties for people who break social distancing restrictions. The government is trying to balance its desire to restart the economy with the risk of sparking a new surge of coronavirus infections. As we have been discussing. Hundreds of thousands of British tourists are being forced to self isolate for two weeks on their return home after the government added France, the Netherlands, and Malta to its list of virus trouble spot destinations. Prime Minister Johnson's administration warned Britons against all non essential trips to those countries and says the quarantine requirement will come into force from 4 a.m. tomorrow. And as we've been telling you, that has sent travel industry stocks tumbling. UK government's plan to get people back to work to fuel the economic recovery is under threat from a rising childcare problem. Financial difficulties are putting the survival of many childcare facilities at risk, potentially forcing parents to drop out of the labor force to stay at home. Not only does that hit household incomes and consumer spending, it could also undo years of progress in getting more women into work, with long-term consequences for growth. Latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, back to you now here in New York.
1: What would Charlie Pellet do in the UK right now? Would Charlie take a domestic holiday? Or would he take the risk of going to a country that may face a quarantine whilst he's away?
6: Two quick answers to that, Jonathan Farrell. Number one, not going to break any laws. Number two, going to do as 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 I'm told. I I dealt with basically the situation here in the United States. My son and I had been planning a trip to China. That got turned into South Korea. That got canceled. Turned into Japan. Where did we go? We went to Hawaii. We spent one night in Hawaii. Just one night. Just one night. And what happened was, all the people were talking about is, are we going to be locked down? Will anybody be? Be getting home? Will flights be cancelled? And that was a source of concern. After one night in Hawaii, which is a tremendous distance to fly, probably 6,000 miles from New York, we decided to bail and get back on the next plane. No
1: way. Now,
6: yes, Charlie the, had
1: no idea this happened.
6: And, and the reason why I mention this is what's the point of going on holiday... If it's no fun, yeah. we, we were trying to sit by the pool. All anybody was talking about was yep. how bad is this going to get? So do you really want to go somewhere? And this th- this all resonates with me is because back at the end of May, I booked a trip into Paris, then going down to Saint-Malo, over to Guernsey, Guernsey flying into either Southampton because I'm Charlie Pellet, or perhaps to Gatwick, and then coming home from, uh, from London. I am now, uh, back in May, I thought no problem, I will be making this trip. Now I'm thinking there's a big question mark hanging over whether I'll be actually making that trip.
3: Yeah, I've got next week off. We're staying at home. Just like, going
1: nowhere, Guy. Yeah.
3: You can't book a trip. You can't book a place to rent down in the southwest. Too expensive. Uh, well, you, no, you can't book them. A- oh, just fully booked. You, you cannot get a rental for a week. Wow. Um, everything is fully booked. Everybody's making the same decision. Um, to Charlie's point do you actually want to be in a hotel or somewhere where basically you don't know what's going to happen next and, and basically you're always dominated by that fear it's just, it's just become a pointless exercise at this point um, which is a really sad state of affairs but I, I guess that's where we are and to a certain extent maybe this was inevitable but Europe relies on tourism, and I think this is going to be a very, very bleak summer season.
1: you just got to worry about the businesses, Guy. The hotels, yep. the restaurants, the whole, the whole industry that was locked down for so long and hoping for a summer and almost offered that hope at one point, just a ray of hope, and just had it snatched right back.
3: Yeah. Um, and I... It, I, I think you could you can make the case that France is a bit different. You can certainly make the case that the Netherlands is a bit different in terms of of what is happening. These are not classic tourist destinations. Well, certainly the Netherlands isn't in the same way that, say, Spain is or Portugal is. Well, not for the same reasons. Not for the yeah. <laughs> not for the same reasons. Amsterdam um, is I a very nice place to visit, but it doesn't have that kind of classic summer sun kind of vibe about it. Nevertheless, um, you, you wonder what. The the long t- also, you just kind of wonder what the long term damage to relations is going to be. Um, yeah, how
1: is this? Uh, at I, mean, I, just to jump when- in. You mentioned that, and that's absolutely fascinating because wasn't that the big concern right at the beginning of this pandemic that what we needed was travel curbs almost immediately, and there was a diplomatic worry about relations and relations with China at the time? Do you remember people in Europe were almost reluctant, governments were almost reluctant
3: because China snapped back? Yep. And here we are, x number of months yeah. on from that, and doing and it with allies, doing it with, doing it with next door. I, uh, I and and I just wonder whether there is a an overlap in into the Brexit process. Um, certainly, there are there are those that are that are of more cynical nature than me out there. Certainly, suggesting that that the two are interrelated. Is there a and, process? There, doesn't, there, I mean, the there has us, to be, I, I thought we had
1: there to do a deal a by the middle of the year or extend it. And here we are still talking about a deal.
3: Yeah, I thought you were talking about the process of determining who uh, who is on the list and who is oh, not Oh, no, on I the hope list. there's a process of
1: that. i am just going to Brexit. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope yeah. they're not just arbitrarily <laughs>
1: sitting at home and thinking, that's not a good place to go on holiday. <laughs> that goes on the list. Yeah, but the,
3: but that question is a, is a real one at the moment about how that process yeah, is working man. and how the decision-making is is ultimately <laughs> happening. Uh, the cable will continue. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
3: Welcome back. Uh, Two hours from now, we're going to see kickoff at the stoop between Harlequins and Sale, uh, the Premiership rugby season, recommencing with that key game. Uh, Earlier on, uh, Alex Steele and I caught up with Laurie Dalrymple. He's the CEO of Harlequins, and I talked to him about how hard it has been to get this club back up and running, keeping going through the lockdown to get back to this point?
7: It's been a big challenge um, without question. Um, and I think, uh, obviously, we, we, we're five months paused. Um, and at the start, there was um, we obviously we had to sit down tools and uh, it was understanding as much about the landscape at that moment in time. Um, we had circa... Forty-five uh, elite athletes, essentially, that we had to try and um, uh, that had to stay at home, and we had a we had an obligation and a duty of care to try and keep their fitness levels to, to the standard uh, that would get them back in as quickly as possible. Which can be very difficult, um, particularly when you've got you know 130 kilo athletes that don't have that sort of um, weight or, or equipment at home that can keep them to the level uh, that they need to be sort of operating at. So. It's been difficult Um, and I guess it's been the not knowing in the one sense um, and sort of having that visibility on when things will be able to restart and then being completely honest with you there's nuances and complexities with the physicality and the contact, the level of contact within rugby as a sport that makes us probably one of the hardest sports if not the hardest sport to get to get back in in a state of competition so um, it's been been long, Uh, it feels like it's been a long way to get to this point but Um, We've been hugely committed. We've got excellent uh, members of our team that have worked around the clock to get the boys back in physical condition Um, and not just in this club, across all clubs, to be fair. Um, And we've worked collaboratively with PRL, RFU and the RPA um, to get the sport in a position where tonight we're ready to go again.
3: How different is the game going to be? Obviously, as you say, it's a contact game. The, the the, The sport has had to think about that but broadly, uh, a sport is not being played in front of live crowds. I, how different is it going to be, and when do you expect things to get back to normal?
4: Hmm.
7: Yeah, it's going to be really different. I mean, a big... Like any live sport, or any any sport, for example, You know, we are we're, we're, we're largely reliant on, on our crowds, not least from a financing and a funding perspective, um, but we are in the entertainment space, um, and we obviously, both teams, to be fair, drive off... The connection and the connectivity that you have with the with the supporting individuals within the stadium. So it's going to take some adjustment um, from from both sets of, of players, and, and obviously we're the home side tonight, um, and it's going to be different when they run out. But we've been um, we've been training in the stadium uh, periodically for the last couple of weeks to get used to it. Um, the boys have obviously been watching a lot of uh, professional football, um, mm-hmm. and we've had visibility on how other sports have, have responded. And I guess it's just It's one of the extra sort of facets that they're going to mentally, psychologically, um, in order to put themselves in the best possible space to compete. And I guess it will be probably the teams and the individuals that manage that absence and that extra challenge the best uh, will probably be the ones that come through the most successfully. But it's, it's, yeah, we've got a hugely connected set of fans with the club. Uh, We're going to miss them terribly tonight. But the focus of the team doesn't diminish They're there to do a job. They're ready to do a job,
3: Uh, and we're looking forward to it. Uh, Laurie Darrell, the CEO of Harlequins Rugby Club. Uh, As I say, the game kicking off uh, a little later on this evening at the Stoop. Uh, A fascinating game, Manitou Lange playing for sale. be interesting to see what kind of uh, impact that he has. And Chris Ashton on the wing uh, for Harlequins. Certainly I'm going to be watching him very carefully to see if he can poach a few points as he has a history of doing. But it's going to be wet. Certainly, that's likely to change the dynamic as well. Uh, what do we got coming up for you? We will uh, wrap up the show. Let me just check in on what's happening with the markets as well. The S&P flat as we speak, 33.76. FTSE 100 down by 1.5% into the close. Uh, the travel and leisure stocks really doing the damage today to that market. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Earlier on, Allianz advisor Mohamed el Arian caught up with John. Let's take a listen to that discussion.
8: We are slowing in terms of the recovery. And the components that are slowing the most are the ones that involve engaging outside. So the the stay-at-home buying is continuing But unfortunately, with what's been happening on the health side, we're seeing less involvement in the economy as a whole. So it is really consistent with the square root sign of what's going to go on, especially if we don't get actions from Congress on unemployment benefits.
1: Well, Mohammed, the month of August is going to be a really interesting month. The enhanced unemployment benefits ended in July, at the end of July. What are you expecting this month?
8: A significant slowing, unfortunately. Um, What the data tells you is this is a very resilient economy. And so far, the consumer has been both willing and able to power us through what what otherwise would look pretty dark. But part of that ability to power us through is through income support. So I'm worried that we are going to see a significant slowing in August and depending on what happens in the next few weeks, even in September.
1: Mohammed, do you think we're making a satisfactory handoff away from fiscal help, fiscal aid, towards a self-sustaining recovery?
8: Not as yet, John. You know, we have three, three issues. Um, one is the health emergency and how well do we understand it and how can we counter it? The other one are the changes in, in, in the economy. But the third one that we hardly ever talk about is behavioural issues. Informed people, are they aligning their risk assessments with what's consistent with society? Are they acting in a way that allows us all to live with COVID in a healthy and economically productive way? And that is proving to be a huge challenge, not just here, but increasingly around the world as well.
1: Well, let's talk about the rest of the world. I think two of the most important, interesting data points of this week so far came out of the UK. The UK economy contracted more than 20%. That's the one data point. The other is the unemployment rate of 3.9%. Mohammed, you can't reconcile the two things without understanding the fiscal help that has been offered to people who are still considered employed. And we face this really important decision now. We continue on with fiscal policy this way and carry on trying to help people who can't get a job or we try and wean this economy off the stimulus. Mohammed, how difficult is this moment now for policymakers?
8: It is really, really hard. Everybody went into this, and I'm gonna use game theory terminology, not because I think this is a game, this is really serious, but game theory terminology gives you really good insights. Everybody went into this thinking it was a one-round game. You get hit with the virus, you deal with it, you support everybody, and then we go back to normal. Now we're finding out it's a multi-round game, and multi-round strategies are very different from one-round strategies. And that is what the UK is discovering. This is really hard decisions. And remember, John, there are four things that government should be doing, not just relief, which is what we're talking about, but also making sure we can live better with COVID, also making sure that we take action to counter the increase in household economics insecurity, and also be careful of deglobalization, be careful of industrial concentration, all that is going on, and it's going to be a further headwind to growth over the long term. So this is really hard for governments, and they are struggling in the first bucket, let alone the next three.
1: Mohammed, you said it's a multi-round game for policymakers. Is it a multi-round game for market participants?
8: John, so far, all that matters for participants is the following. Do I have confidence in the reliable and ample provision of liquidity by central banks and more from economic realities? But I keep on telling people, favorable technicals are a necessary condition for you to do well, but they're not sufficient over the long term. You're going to need a handoff. And you see this week the market struggle with what theme am I pursuing underneath the liquidity theme? Am I pursuing the reopening theme as we did earlier this week? Or am I pursuing the stay-at-home theme as we did later in the week? They alternate between themes, but as long as there's confidence in the support of central banks, these market technicals can take us quite a long way until you get a big shock. And then you, we're going to find out if that happens, and I hope it doesn't happen, but if that happens, that we've overshot.
1: What I think you're hitting at is testing that confidence then Mohamed. So, build on that. What are you looking for that you think could test the confidence that people have in the policymaker?
8: So, people expect central banks to do more the whole narrative about about the Fed, for example, is they're going to do more on forward guidance. They're going to do more on QE. So there's this notion that the central banks will continue to do more of the same, regardless of whether there's a handoff to fiscal or not. And it puts central banks in a lose-lose situation. If they don't do more, they can be responsible for a market sell-off that undermines the economic recovery. But if they do more, there's just exaggerating the decoupling. So this is a really tough environment. And people should always think a little bit about risk mitigation in this context.
1: Risk mitigation, how, Mohammed, because that's a conversation that's come up repeatedly in the last several weeks. How do you mitigate risks in this market, the best way of doing it?
8: You know, as we've discussed before, and, and that has to do with what's been happening to gold, it has to do with what's been happening to investment grade, what even is starting to happen to high yield, people have realized that government bonds are not the risk mitigator they used to be, that their price risk is so asymmetrical that they have to do something more. And we've seen people migrate to a bucket of risk mitigators. And what's the irony in this John, is the bucket of risk mitigator includes risk. So it's not just gold, it's the front end of investment grade, and some are even seeing the front end of high yield as being part of this risk mitigation bucket. And it tells you the extent to which markets have been distorted by the involvement of central banks. People now think that risky assets are risk-free
3: in their portfolio. Nancy Pelosi indicating a little earlier on that maybe equity markets had been juiced a little bit by the Fed. That's certainly her view, which is interesting going into November. Um, let's talk about next week. Um, we've got long-end auctions, Japan, Germany. Uh, you've got a 20-year going out of the door in the U.S. You've got inflation data out of the, uh, the U.K., Canada, Japan, the EU. Uh, got a lot of Fed speak next week. Pay attention to that. Uh, central bank minutes from the U.S., accounts from the EU, We've got them from the Australians and from India. A lot of housing data out of the States as well next week. Plus, of course, the start of the week, the Democratic National Convention. Plenty of coverage coming up of that on Bloomberg. Have a great weekend. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.